Our first scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Ecclesiastes 7. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. To then turn, please, to James chapter 1, and uh, we begin now on a new uh, sermon series on the book of James. I'll read the first 13 verses, the text for the sermon, verses 2 to 4, James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because, like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Covenant people of God, as I believe we have considered at a number of times before, people respond to suffering and adversity in very different ways. You have uh, some who suffer in a very uh, stoic way. You don't find that so much with the younger generation in the Western world, but uh, certainly with the previous generation, uh, those especially who experienced uh, war and the aftermath of war uh, have tended to develop a very uh, stoic approach to things, a a stiff upper lip approach to adversity, a kind of uh, philosophical approach, as it's sometimes called. And you, you have others who are rather fatalistic in the way that they deal with suffering. You have those who say you've simply got to grin and bear it. You have those who say, well, that's life. That's the way the cookie crumbles. You have those who say, perhaps not so much to themselves, but to others, well, that's just tough luck. For the Christian, of course, there's no such thing as tough luck. We don't believe in luck at all. We believe in an all-encompassing providence of a sovereign God. And we must therefore regard adversity, in a sense, as something that has been sent by God. You might have noted that in the reading that we had from Ecclesiastes, that idea that all of these things that we experience, for good and for bad, all of those things are in some way sent by God. They come from his hand. And that truth, that even the the calamities, the disasters, the negative and bad experiences that we have, even those things are from God in a sense, that has many implications about how we are to regard such things and how we are to respond to such things. And above all, we are to respond to them, all of them, the good and the bad experiences, we are to respond to them in faith. James explores what that means, and especially in this first chapter of this book, he explores just what it means to respond to life in faith. We're going to look at some of the implications, those that are drawn out in our text this morning, under three headings. First of all, the joy of faith. Secondly, the endurance of faith. And thirdly, the completion of faith. The joy of the endurance and the completion of faith. 
in the first place then, knowing that God is the one who, in a sense, sends adversity. It's not just a matter of bad luck. In light of that, we are told that we are to consider it all joy, all of the things that we experience, including the trials. Before we consider why, I want to make a couple of uh, notes about this, uh, this uh, first uh, section that we look at, verse 2, and to some extent verse 3. Uh, a couple of notes before we come back to look at what it means to consider it all joy and why we do so. And the first of these observations is that this word uh, trials that we find in verse 2, it's a very interesting word, one that James uses often, and what makes it interesting is that you can translate it at least two different ways. The same word in the Greek can mean either trials on the one hand, or on the other hand it can also mean temptations. You can translate it either way. And James uses it both ways, especially in this first chapter. He uses the same word both ways, uh, gliding from one shade of meaning through to the other and back again, and sometimes lumping both of those ideas in together, trials and temptations. But in a way, when you think about it, that's not really so surprising, because there are certain similarities between trials and temptations. A trial we might regard as the outward adversity or the outward opposition that comes to us from people or from circumstances. Whereas temptation is more the inward struggle that we have. Uh, The inward adversity, if you like, the inward hostility that comes especially from the devil as he seeks to excite our desires to sin. And we have that old nature. So there is within us, in part, that desire that we still have to do things that are sinful and not pleasing in God's sight. Hence, it is possible for the devil to tempt us. Neither the trial nor the temptation actually forces us to sin, but either of them can be the occasion for sin if we give in to the temptation or if we deal with the bad circumstances in the wrong way. By the same token, both of these situations, the trial and the temptation, both of them can be an opportunity for growth, if they're handled in the right way. And I'll say more about that later. Both the trial and the temptation come in a fallen world, they could only occur in a fallen world, a world of misery and sin, Both of them, however, take place under God's overarching sovereign will, under his providence. Even though they are both used, or the devil at least attempts to use both of them. The devil attempts to use both our trials and to bring to us temptations. James uses the term various trials, and what he means by that, literally the the word means uh, very coloured, or we might say today many coloured, or motley. And what he's saying is that that we experience throughout our life uh, a whole motley collection of different kinds of trials and temptations. Some of it comes by way of opposition from men. Some comes by way of opposition from circumstances. And some of this motley collection comes from that struggle that we have inwardly 
by way of temptation, struggle against Satan. When we come to the temptation aspect, however, James wants to make it clear that God's sending of this adversity, the adversity of temptation, and Satan's use of the same thing are very different matters. It is a temptation with respect to Satan's part in it. As the devil seeks to take opportunity to persuade us to think and to say and to do things that are displeasing to the Lord. Whereas the very same event seen from God's side and from his intentions is called testing. It is tempting from the devil's side, but in the same event it is a testing from God's side, a testing of faith as verse 3 calls it. What is being tested from God's side is the purity of faith. And uh, this is like the term that's used here when it talks about this testing. Uh, It's referring to, it's a similar term for metallurgy, where you have a piece of uh, rock that you know has some gold in it, and you take it in to have it evaluated and assayed, as so you know how much gold is there and how much other impurity. And that's the kind of language that's used here. Now, to illustrate the difference between this testing, this valuating, this assaying of our faith, to illustrate the difference between that from God's side and from the devil's side, we could consider an example of two teachers, uh, two teachers in a school. One of them is a terribly, terribly mean fellow, and he just loves in his exams to put in the most difficult questions that he can find because he really doesn't like those students and uh, he wants to trip them up. He wants to put in those difficult questions so that he can fail as many as possible. And then you have the good teacher who also puts in some difficult questions, but he does that for a completely different reason. He wants to put those harder questions in there to show up what weaknesses the students have so that they can then be helped to become stronger in those areas of weakness. And that is something like the difference between Satan's tempting and God's testing. Satan tempts us for our destruction. He's not interested in helping us. But God tests us for our good. God does not test our faith because he doesn't know what it's like, because he is ignorant of how weak or strong or perfect or imperfect we are, and he wants to test us so he can find out. No, he already knows what our faith is like. He knows how weak it is. And there's no doubt about that. It is weak from our side. God knows that our faith is imperfect, and he knows every detail of where those imperfections lie. He doesn't test us so he finds out. He tests our faith so that we find out. So that our weaknesses are revealed to us and that we then go to the Lord and seek his help to be strengthened in those very areas. So that we can be progressively purified, sanctified, so that we can be smelted, and refined, uh, and even smelted and refined in the forges in the fires of affliction, of adverse circumstances, and also our struggles with temptation. 
so that through all of this, sin is more and more rooted out and dealt with, and that we then may be strengthened. And that's a process that will only end on the day that the Lord Jesus ends all things, and on that day, uh, our works will be tested by fire. They will go through a final testing. And on that day, every single thing then that is rubbish that remains, everything that is not built upon that, that solid gold foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything else that is rubbish will be utterly swept away. And then we'll be left with just the pure gold on that day. Now I wanted to explain uh, those two observations about the way these terms trials and temptations and testing, the way that that's used, so that we understand that in regard of these processes, in regard of the encountering of various trials in our lives and temptations, James, why James says, consider it all joy. And this is a, a vital aspect of our response to what is sent to us from God, that we do consider it all joy. Not that we rejoice in pain and suffering as such. Not that we rejoice in the, the misery that comes into our lives as well as to the world at large because of sin. Not that we see pain and suffering and misery as something precious and valuable as such but rather that we regard faith as a precious thing. That is why we consider it all joy, not because the suffering is precious, but because the faith is precious. And you don't, uh, of course, normally object to having that which is precious valuated. You don't uh, have any problem with having that which is precious assayed as to uh, how much gold is in it, a gold-bearing rock or something of that kind, and you don't object to doing that even if there's a price to pay for it, if it's a little costly because the end result is worth far more than the cost that you pay to have it tested. And so we ought to be even more glad to have our faith evaluated, to have our faith tested. Because it is the faith that is precious, not the, the suffering and so on, but the faith that is precious, and therefore we ought to be glad to have it tested, to have it proven and demonstrated by that, that, that test, that it's the real thing, that it's genuine. It is for your benefit to have it demonstrated to you, this assurance that God is working in your life. And when you undergo trials and temptations, the, the outcome of that as God sanctifies you helps to demonstrate that. It tells you as you go through those things and come out the other side, it tells you that God is working in your life. He is giving you this gift of faith and working on it. It is also for your benefit to learn what is impure in your life. And to have that also worked on and, and to be strengthened, to have your sanctification furthered. It may be costly, and it is sometimes costly. It is costly to have to go through trials, uh, to have to go through pain and suffering and struggle and temptation. It is costly, but faith is such a precious gift, the cost of that is far outweighed by the benefits that come from that. 
And therefore, we should be able to rejoice. As God's people, we should be able to rejoice in all of these things, not just in the the positive experiences, but in all of these things. All that God is doing, including what he does when he sends trials and testings our way. And that is a question to ask of ourselves. Are you rejoicing in what God is doing in your life through your struggles, through your illness, through your financial struggles, through your other setbacks in your family life or whatever else it may be, even through your struggles with sin? Do you rejoice in that? That's what we're commanded to do. second implication of the fact that God is the one who sends all of these things for good, and that is that they produce endurance, verse 3. It's another reason to consider it all joy. Uh, The word endurance talks about, it, it means patience, it means steadfastness, it means perseverance, Christian stickability, a constancy through all of the changes that happen around us and to us, changes of circumstances and motley experiences of trials and temptations. Behind this, uh, behind this, this uh, promise that uh, these things produce endurance, behind that lies the truth that faith needs exercise in order to grow and develop. Faith needs testing Because from our side, faith is impure. It's weak from our side, so it needs to be tested. And for precisely the same reason, because our faith is weak from our side, it also needs to be loaded. It needs to have a load put upon it in order that it should be exercised and grow. Just like muscles need to be loaded in order to grow in strength and stamina, in endurance. If you want your muscles to grow, you've got to go out there and do some hard work, some hard outdoor work, or perhaps uh, go for a, uh, for a nice run on a regular basis, or lift weights, or whatever else you do. You need to load your muscles for them to grow in strength and stamina. Well, trials and temptations are that loading. They are the loading upon the muscles of faith in order to build strength and stamina to build endurance. To change the analogy, endurance may be defined also as a constant courage of the believer under fire. But you see then fire is the background, that is the context, you need to be under fire for there to be a constancy despite that fire, that ongoing pressure. And again, the trials and temptations provide that that background of fire under which we learn to be constant and to persevere. It's rather ironical that the Christian faith is regarded by many in our society as something weak, and soft and unmanly, uh, something that is fit really only for women and children and old folks in the minds of many in our culture, and especially of the average Kiwi bloke. That's the way they tend to think about Christianity. But congregation, nothing could be further from the truth. 
It is not the Christian faith that is... Excuse me. It is not the Christian faith that is weak and soft and unmanly. The Christian faith is a matter of developing strength and endurance and stamina under fire, under a load. It is the way of struggle as well as the way of victory. No, the weak and the soft and the spineless and the unmanly way is the non-Christian way. It is the unbeliever's way, which is the way of avoiding loads wherever possible. Loads upon a faith, which is, of course, absent in the non-Christian. The non-Christian, the unbeliever's way, is the way of giving in to those bad responses to trial, to trials, and giving in to the temptations of the devil. It is the unbeliever who is the weak, has taken the weak and the soft way. And that's not to deny that the only strength in the Christian way, uh, the strength that we do have, doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Now, endurance is very important for the Christian because it is also a fertile ground in which other Christian virtues grow. You will find it very hard to gain a steady growth in the Christian life in general, in other areas, if you are up and down and all over the place every time the winds of fortune change. Or, for that matter, if under the pressure of temptation, you give in to the point uh, that there is a a kind of constant giving in and and a setting up of besetting sins, again, the same result that you will find it hard to grow in a balanced and mature way as a Christian. The Christian who maintains by God's grace a steady course and maintains that steady course uh, even when he's heading into the wind, even when he's heading into what looks like the eye of the storm, the Christian who maintains that kind of constancy and endurance is the one who will most likely develop in a balanced way in the various aspects of his Christian life, with the other uh, virtues growing apace. Uh, Endurance, in that sense, is a very, very important thing for a Christian to have. And if we don't have it, and if we're flipped and flopped all over the place by the changing circumstances, it will be hard to mature in the faith. Unfortunately, when we feel that something is threatening our security, when we feel that something is threatening our job or our income or our family life or our church life or whatever else it is, uh, feeling tends to be, we've got to sort this out immediately. Uh, We've got to have this matter settled and we've got to have it settled quickly, if not immediately. And if we don't, what on earth is going to become of us? Our world will surely fall apart if X, Y or Z happens or if X, Y and Z doesn't happen. But consider this. If the Lord delays in providing you with an obvious solution or in giving clear guidance on a course of action, this means that you are given further opportunity for patience. You are given further opportunity to learn endurance, constancy, perseverance, steadfastness. You are given a longer time to exercise these things, trust, confidence in the Lord as well. You are given further opportunity to build up those muscles of faith in this area. 
And this is an opportunity for growth, for strengthening. It is an opportunity for blessing that not all are given. It is, in that respect, a privilege. And that is the reason why, one of the reasons why, it can all be considered as joy. Once we see it from this God-centered perspective, and under that, from the angle of our sanctification. When we look at our trials and temptations from that angle, and see what endurance may be, uh, may be produced by that, then um, we begin to see it differently and not all negatively. More than strength, the aim of all this is actually perfection. Verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Faith tested and approved produces endurance, And endurance also leads on to something else. It leads on to an end result, to a final goal of perfection. We look at this as our third and final point, the completeness of faith. Now even the word produces in verse 3 points us in this direction because this word produces, the way it's used here, implies a definite accomplishment. It implies that this testing that God puts upon you, it will indeed do its job thoroughly and successfully. This metallurgical process that God puts you through, testing and refining, it will in the end produce a complete purity of precious gold eventually. Now the word perfect generally suggests to us moral perfection and that is part of it no doubt. But the basic idea of this word perfect that's used here, it it really speaks primarily of completion. It speaks of maturity, of fulfilment. It's a word that means that everything is sound and complete in all its parts. That everything is in place exactly as it should be. Nothing's missing, nothing's lacking. Well, trials and temptations are an opportunity for faith to move towards that full effect, that that wholeness that is spoken of here. And again, not purely or merely a negative experience. And that too is why we may consider it all joy. And isn't that after all your desire, that, uh, that completion that perfection. Isn't that something that we want as Christian people and uh, not just uh, want in a casual kind of way but want with all our heart and as earnestly as we want anything else that we want the goal of faith in its entirety. Who wants to stay immature? Who wants to be a kind of spiritual Peter Pan never growing up, never growing old? Who wants to be partial or incomplete as a Christian? Who wants to miss the goal? The Christian desires to have all parts of his spiritual life in full working order and the Christian yearns for the completion of that, for the perfection of that. In fact, that desire for completion is an, it's an inevitable implication of our love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is complete 
And He is perfect. He is perfection itself. And the salvation that He has won for His people is perfect and complete. And the hope that Jesus Christ gives to his people is a certain hope of a time and a place and a state where everything in the whole universe is perfect and complete. Well, Scripture says we are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Scripture says we are predestined to be conformed to his image. Romans 8.29 Love of Christ means love of his image and we are being told here that his image is one of completion and perfection. And therefore the desire for completion, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ and the hatred of being incomplete as we are now from our side, that love of completion and hatred of incompletion is not an option for a Christian. And so too the desire for endurance. It's not an option. Because endurance is that which leads on to perfection, as we're told here. It leads on to that final result. It's a step in the way. It's it's a necessary part of the process, learning to endure. And therefore also the desire that God would use and he would send to us whatever we need. Whatever testing it is. Whatever trial it is that we should need, not that we uh, look forward to the, the, uh, the, the experience of the suffering in itself, but we, we look to God to give what we need by way of testing and by way of trial so that the endurance will be built up and the endurance in turn will lead on to that perfect result, that completion. It's all part of the process, the trials and temptations as well. And through it all, joy is not an option. For if we don't consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, that simply means we haven't really understood what God is doing with those things, why he sent them to us and what those things are doing in our lives, what it produces in us. We haven't really understood what those things produce in us, the endurance and the completion how they conform us and transform us into that beloved image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, will you teach us to rejoice in all you are accomplishing in and through us, even that which is accomplished by means of trial and temptation. Father, help us to trust that you are our faithful and loving Heavenly Father who desires only good for your children. And Father, we do praise you for your goodness and your love and your faithfulness, these things that shine out, these things about you that shine out even amidst our suffering. Father, help us so to rejoice, to endure and to grow towards the final goal in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray it. Amen. In doubt and temptation, I rest, Lord, in thee. Psalter hymn 137.
we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology, number 137. in my